This morning, we're continuing on through the Sermon on the Mount. We're, in, we're, we're going to be ending chapter 5. It's on page 761 in the Black Bibles around the room, or open up your own Bible. Uh, it's Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 through 48. Love your enemies. This is a text that's jarring to the people of God. So I want to read it. Uh, I want to just let it begin to simmer in us, and then, and then we'll jump in this morning. Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 through 48, page 761 in the Black Bibles. Jesus speaking here. There's a series of discourses where he's saying things like, you have heard it said, but I say to you. He's establishing his authority as not only Lord, not only Savior, not only Master, but Teacher. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Purpose clause, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors, the lowest common denominator in Jewish society, do not even they do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, your fellow Israelites, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles or the pagans do the same. Jesus ends this teaching by saying, or this section by saying, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. This is God's word to his people. Father, would you speak? Would you empower us to hear? Uh, Would you open us up and give us ears to hear what you are saying to your church? In Jesus' name, amen. This uh, functionally, this idea of loving your enemies, not even idea, but action of loving enemies is in many ways functionally, it's the heartbeat of Christianity, where the resurrection of Christ is the doctrinal kind of center of Christianity, of our professed faith, loving enemies is one of the ways that the church has endured throughout the centuries. Incredible odds were stacked against the church of Jesus Christ in the first century. Just 120 brothers and sisters gathered together, devoting themselves to prayer, pressed on all sides, hated by their fellow Israelites, hated and marginalized by the Romans. How in the world would 120 people eventually multiply by the year 380 AD to topple Rome? I'm not saying it was a good thing that Roman society declared Christianity the national religion, but that is what occurred in 380 AD. Loving of enemies was at the center of that endurance. It was the way that they proclaimed that their trust and their faith was in something far greater than themselves because otherwise they would have been begging for their lives. But rather they entrusted themselves to the one who cares for them ultimately. Loving our friends, hating our enemies, uh, it takes no work. (laughs) It takes virtually no work, no intentionality to live into this reality, does it? To love those who love you, but to hate and dislike and oppose those who dislike or oppose you. Um, we just do it. it just, it's, it's what we do in our human nature. Uh, when, some, when someone cusses us out or mistreats us, uh, we tend to cut them off entirely. 
We look for ways to make them pay. We look for ways to get retribution. Hate comes easy to humanity. It comes very, very easy. All you have to do is look at the headlines of the major news outlets in this moment of cancellation, and we recognize that cancellation is actually a form of relational hate. It's a form of relational hatred. That's why the command from last week's passage that Trevor taught through on retaliation, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, is so uh, revolutionary because, um, because this idea of an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth was a, a limiter in the ancient age to injustice. It actually limited injustice. So if you got attacked, if you got beat up and you lost a tooth, you could not come back with vengeance and maybe a few of your friends and smash that person's head. The penalty... The justice dispensed has to match the offense. And so that was very uh, revolutionary at the time. Otherwise, it's injustice. But what we know about the God of the Scriptures, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we're a Trinitarian people. God is just, and His people are just. This is an attribute that He embodies, and it's an attribute that He wants um, seen and revealed in His people. And so, Today's teaching on loving your enemies or loving our enemies, it's jarring no matter who you are. Jarring, why? Because I think to me in particular, it feels unnatural. Loving my enemies, it actually feels unnatural to me, and it is. It's unnatural to my fallen state. It's unnatural to my flesh. Human nature on its own, it seeks its own way. Human nature on its own, uh, it seeks its own law or sense of laws, right from wrong. It seeks independence from God's rule. But Jesus of Nazareth, he lives actually to, he's lived and he still lives to show us a new way. He gave his life as a ransom to open up the way to reconciliation with Father, Son, and Spirit he rose from the dead to prove the merit of his life and teaching, to prove the fact that he is true, that he is alive, that he's sitting right now currently at the Father's right hand and directing his people to his way through his spirit. So here's where we're going this morning. I'm going to give you a roadmap. I've got uh, five points. They're going to be brief. This, this teaching could go on for 20 sermons easy and just practical application here and what this means for us. But uh, out of the text, I want to try to build this message. It's going to be simple in form. Uh, My first point is loving neighbors and hating enemies. It feels natural to us. I've already started to talk a little bit about that. Uh, But then from there, I want to move to this idea that loving both good and evil people, it's the Father's way. And then from there, I want to go to the fact that Jesus's way is identical to the Father's way. And I want to ask then, is our way becoming Jesus's way or is Jesus's way becoming our way? And then we'll we'll end in verse 48 in this perplexing line, you must be perfect as your father is perfect. Jesus's way is the way of maturity. So that's where we're going this morning. And then just, I've actually just got one application for us. Very, very, very simple today. So point one, loving neighbors and hating enemies feels natural to us. You see this in verses 33. And then also he kind of explains it a bit in verses 46 and 47 about greeting neighbors and loving those who love us. You've heard it said, 
You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Jesus is referring back. He's consistently reaching back into the Old Testament. He's reaching back into uh, Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. This is like the part B of the great commandment. Um, Matthew will touch on this again in Matthew chapter 19. He'll touch on it again in Matthew chapter 22. The great commandment is you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. And the second is like it, you shall, know, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You shall love your neighbor as yourself is found in Leviticus chapter 19, 18. And it's the second part of this great commandment. Now, Israelites, they took loving, at, at this time, they took loving your neighbor out of Leviticus 19.18 to be exclusive. What that means is that they, were, they, they believed they were only responsible to love their fellow countrymen and women. They were only responsible to love their fellow Israelites. Loving enemies was in their thought process and, if, and, and in the development of their belief system, it was excluded. Um, so in essence, love your own and you're good. Love God's people and you're good. There was even a monastic uh, community that lived by the Dead Sea around that time that developed a system of thought and they were ardent like copiers, scribes of the scriptures. And they had a saying in some of their commentary that they lived by and it was this, love your brother but hate your enemy. By the time of Jesus, think about this, the people of Israel, the nation of Israel, Israelites, they had been occupied for well over 500 years. At this time, not just by the Romans, though currently in Jesus' day they're occupied by the Romans, but before that it was the Babylonians, and after that it was the Persians, and then along come the Romans. They're consistently having their land stripped from them, whether it's from them, it's from a generation before them. They are like Trevor taught last week, and Jesus was opening up to us in um, the, the passage on retaliation. They were consistently being commandeered by Roman soldiers who would just say, hey, you, come here, carry my things. And they would have to do that or suffer beatings or suffer arrest or suffer worse. Uh, they were being extorted by their fellow countrymen, tax collectors, who were coming to them and collecting taxes on behalf of the Romans. They were, they were, they were, some of the tax rate at, the, at that day, there's some records that say it was upwards of 80% of what they were earning were being taxed and taken from them by the Romans. They were, they were an absolutely oppressed society. What this means is that they had enemies all around. Daily, when they woke up and exited their front doors quickly, they were seeing and setting their eyes on an enemy, someone that they considered an enemy. Now, nowhere in the scriptures, though, is there a command to hate your enemies. Nowhere in the Old Testament or in the New Testament is there a command to hate enemies. And to be fair, there's a long history of enemy hatred expressed throughout the Old Testament. There's a long history. We have groups of psalms actually called imprecatory psalms. Have you heard of these? Imprecatory psalms are psalms of curse. There's so, like Psalm 109, I'll read you a portion of it in just a moment, is a really good example of an imprecatory psalm. And they're shocking. Uh, these psalms curse enemies, saying things like, may his days be few, may another take his office. Listen to this. May his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. May he die. And then it goes on, may his children wander about and beg. 
seeking food far from the ruins that they inhabit. These psalms are a way of lamenting how people have forsaken God, and these psalms are crying out for justice, and these psalms are expressing hatred of God's enemies and hatred of their own enemies. There are passages in the Old Testament as well where the Lord commands the destruction of entire people groups, which is shocking to our modern consciences. I recognize these passages are in our Bible. These passages need honest, reflective, and careful treatment. And so what I'm gonna do, just as a way of helping to steer you, I could use the entire, I've got your attention, I could use the entirety of our time to kind of unpack some of this this morning and I think in some ways miss the point of what's exactly here in the text. So I wanna point you to a series of interviews that a church in Portland, Oregon called Bridgetown Church conducted in 2017. Trevor turned me on to these really, really, really helpful interviews. There's six of them. If you Google Bridgetown Church nonviolence interviews, all six of them will just come up as the first results in your, in your query. Uh, they interview people like Dr. Tim Mackey of the Bible Project, Dr. Gary Brashears of Western Seminary, um, a guy named Greg Boyd, uh, who is a, a theologian as well. Um, some of them, I'm really, uh, I'll just say this, like, because some of you are going to be listening with more careful ears. Some of them I endorse, some of them and listen to and learn from. Some of them I'm way more careful about. They've got some theological viewpoints that I'm a little squirrely on, but... Here's what I want you to know. As you listen to these interviews, I want you to listen with careful ears, and I also want you to listen on topic, what they're saying around nonviolence. I want you to listen on topic if you're willing. Um, there's, there's six of them. They've, they've given me language. They've given me application. They've given me a, a, a far more robust understanding of what what it means to, to, to commit myself to a life of nonviolence. And, and it jars me. I'm, an, I'm a born and raised Idahoan. Like, I am used to a mentality that says, if they come here, we'll take them out. Like, that's the, that's the, the culture, that's the home, that's, the, that's, that's how I've grown up. And so at 42 years old, in many ways, like I'm coming to these teachings on nonviolence going, oh my word, I'm just getting started. Like I'm just getting started here on taking these teachings, these particular teachings of Jesus in and home and considering the implications of them. So I'm in process right now. These interviews, they're fascinating and they're helpful in helping you think through implications of nonviolence. So go there, um, if you would. And I'll restate this, uh, moving on. Nowhere in the Bible is there an explicit command for us to hate our enemies. Rather, um, the overwhelming biblical record shows the character of the God who bears with his enemies and is merciful to them and merciful to the enemies of his people. There are times when he issues justice, yes, often actually, yet he overflows with mercy. The God of the scriptures overflows with repent, repent, turn to me, 
turn to me that you may be healed. That you may, he, he, he even introduces provisions for outsiders to come into the nation of his people, for those who are alien to the Israelites to become Hebrews and to worship the risen Christ, to worship the real and true God. Here's my second point. Loving good and evil people is the Father's way. There's a theme throughout the Bible that theologians refer to as common grace. The, the, the phrase common grace or the kind of the, the doctrine of common grace, that, that phrase doesn't appear anywhere in the scriptures, but the scriptures teach this idea of common grace. And um, a theologian and pastor named Sam Storms is really helpful on this point. This is how he defines uh, common grace. He says, while humanity is totally depraved and deserving of God's wrath, God mercifully postpones his destroying wrath and graciously blesses all men, I'll include women there, all men, all mankind, even apart from salvation. So what he's saying is, even for those who are not God's people, God is, um, he is graciously blessing them and postponing his wrath against their rebellion, against their hatred of him. Sam Storms goes on to say, this is called God's common grace. Common grace includes all undeserved blessings that natural man receives from the hand of God. Rain, sun, you're hearing these themes in Matthew's teaching in chapter five. Rain, sun, prosperity, health, happiness, natural capacities and gifts. Sin being restrained from complete dominion over the world etc. The doctrine of common grace explains how a man can be totally depraved and yet still commit acts that are in some sense good. The common grace, however, falls short of salvific grace, salvation grace. All humans still need the saving work of the Holy Spirit to reconcile them to God. Common grace is what Jesus is referring to in this passage where he says that the Father makes the Son rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Every good thing that every person enjoys is ultimately given from the hand of the God who provides. That's what the scriptures teach us. John the Baptist would even say in John 3, a person cannot receive even one thing, even one thing, unless it is given from him or given to him from heaven. Evil people in this world are given an abundance of time to repent. That's common grace. They're also given a multitude of various blessings, whether it's the weather that they live under or the prosperity or the friendships or the marriages or the children, whatever it is that they enjoy, they are given an abundance of good things to the Father, though they may shake fists at him and hate him. My third point, Jesus' way is identical to the Father's way. Verse 44, look at verse 44. But I say to you, you've heard it said, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. He's establishing his authority here, his authority. I say to you, love your enemies and what? And pray for those who persecute you. 
Pray for those who persecute you. In John's gospel, the fourth gospel in our New Testaments, there's an instance when Jesus was, when he was foretelling his death and his resurrection to his fellow uh, disciples, they started to freak out as he began to kind of unpack what was going to happen. And a man named Thomas said to him, um, this is in John 14, Lord, we don't know where you're going. You're scaring us essentially with this language. We want you to stay here. How can we know the way? How are we going to follow you once you're gone? Jesus said this famous passage that many Christians are familiar with. He said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father. You're not gonna find your way there unless you find your way through me. And then he goes on in verse seven of chapter 14, John's gospel to say, if you'd known me, you would have known my father also. If you would have, listen to that language. If you would have known me, if you had known me, you would have known my father also. There's imaging here. There's imitation here. There's likeness here. Jesus would then say, from now on, you do know him and you have seen him. What is he talking about? He's talking about they have, they have encountered and followed the risen Christ. They know the father because he and the father are one. They know what the father is like. Philip said to him, he's still like trying to get his mind around this. Would we be any different? No, we wouldn't. Lord, show us the father. It's enough for us. If we could just see him, then we would know. And Jesus would say, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? I'm gonna make it plain. Whoever has seen me has seen the father. Whoever has seen me has seen the father. I and the father are one. Jesus's teaching, his instruction in all of the gospels and certainly in the Sermon on the Mount is consistent with and represents the Father's heart toward humanity. The writer of Hebrews in our New Testaments in Hebrews chapter one, verse three would say that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. In human form, he is radiating the wonder and the awe and the power and the goodness, the perfection of the Father. And then this writer in Hebrews will tell us Jesus is the exact, listen to the language here, exact imprint of his nature. He's the copy. In the flesh, who we are encountering in Jesus Christ exactly represents the Father. Back to Matthew chapter five, Jesus teaches, you've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. I want you to take a moment here and consider the connection between love and prayer. Look at the text in front of you or, or just think of what Jesus is saying here. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Where's their connection between prayer and loving enemies? Is there connection? Do you see it? Is this passage instructive? I believe it is. I believe this passage is instructive. He's actually teaching us how. He's giving us the how. He's giving us the starting point. He's giving us the 101 of loving our enemies. What's our first move of tangible love toward enemies? First move, according to Jesus, say it. It's praying for them. When I hear love your enemies, I move straight to action. I don't move to prayer. The action that I move to is I've got to let them off the hook for something, or I've got to like get them on the hook for something else, or 
I've got to serve them even though I want to punch them. Like I, I move to, th- I, that's, that's just where I go in my own humanity. That is my wisdom. That is your wisdom leading the way. But what does prayer open us up to? It opens us up to letting the Spirit of God take the lead. That's what prayer opens us up to. Is enemy prayer a suggestion or a command according to the way Jesus words this? It's a command. It's on the level. It's joined to loving enemies. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. It is command. In fact, praying for our enemies is the way to love our enemies. The thing that's interesting about prayer too, in my own experience, is it almost always leads us to action. Prayer, there are times it doesn't. There are times we're disobedient or there are times when the Holy Spirit just says like, hands off, let it go. And, some, and that actually is action. It always, almost always leads us to action. But prayer leads us to action that is God-led rather than self-led. Praying for our enemies leads us to action that is led by him rather than led by self and our flesh and our humanity. As Jesus spent time alone with the Father and the Spirit in the wilderness, Jesus came back and he was wrung out in service of the poor. And he would regularly escape early in the morning, late at night for time of solitude and prayer. Maybe that's not your phase of life right now. Maybe, maybe uh, we need to think creatively about how we get 15 or 20 minutes of solitude before the Lord, whether it's a walk late at night. All I want to do is hit the sack, but kids are in bed, like husband's home or kids are in bed, wife's home. And maybe I just need a walk around the block with no earbuds in and just to talk and to seek and to be with the Lord. Maybe that's what it looks like for us. As Jesus spent that kind of time away, that's actually how he was recharged to come back and to have his life wrung out in service of the people around him. As Jesus wept and dreaded his impending execution, the cross is near. He's in the garden. He's, his, his own legs, he's so fearful, his own legs won't even hold him up. He hits the ground sweating drops of blood because capillaries in his skin, the vessels under his skin are bursting due to his stress. And what does Jesus do in that moment? He prays. He asks to be spared from having the cup of God's wrath poured out on humanity. He, 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 he wants to be spared from it being poured out onto his back, but through prayer, he was strengthened. And what did he do? He moved forward in action and gave his life as a ransom to cover the cost of your sin, my sin, our sin. You and I were enemies. We were enemies. We happen to be, we happen to have lived as enemies in the 21st century, not the first century. But if time periods were flopped and, and switched and we were in the first century Jerusalem at the time of Jesus, it's likely that, that, that we are so divided in our own souls that at one moment we would have been crying out Hosanna when Jesus entered into the city and crucify him or just been indifferent to it as the Romans carried it out in the first century. You and I have postured ourselves in our lives as enemies. And what does Jesus continue to do for us? He continues to serve us as our friend, continuing and continuing and continuing. Some of, there, there, are, there are people in this room right now who are still enemies of Christ. 
you are his enemy. You have not relented. You have not come to him in repentance and faith. And his wrath still rests upon you. That is to say that it, it will come your way if you do not bend a knee to Jesus Christ. And yet, while you live, his common grace is upon you, providing breath and weather and friends and networks of relationships and a moment of just being here, hearing his word taught this morning where he is appealing to you. He is appealing to you. He is serving you even now as a loyal friend. All the way to his death, he endured and was empowered through his life of prayerful dependence. Now, here's how this uh, came home. Uh, his, his command of loving enemies came home uh, to me this week. There was, it's so interesting when you're teaching God's word. Trevor, you're starting to figure this out. Like you're teaching God's word, you're in a passage and that stuff starts to happen. It's weird. It's strange. You're kind of like, it's, it's regular. Loving enemies is a problematic passage to have to teach in a week coming up. There's a young guy who was marginally part of our church four or five years ago. Um, he and I uh, were having some conversations at one point, and, uh, and I said some things to him that he took great offense to. I've been known to be really blunt. If I've hurt you, if I've wounded you and you're holding on to that, please come to me and let's reconcile. I didn't realize it, but he'd been holding on to these things for four or five years or so. And, and I began to, uh, I didn't understand how badly my words had stung him. Now, now uh, we have two kids who are playing sports and they're in, in the same league, but they're in two different sports, two different age groups. He also happens to have two kids who are playing in those same two leagues. So over the last six weeks, I've seen this guy um, at least once a week, sometimes three times a week, as we've got a practice and then a game and then Jenny's soccer games on the weekend. And he's been there. And I, I, was glad to see him. I didn't realize the words that I had said had stung him in the way that they did. And I didn't realize there was something between us. And I was saying hi to him. And he was like seeing me, we were making eye contact and he was just staring me down, like staring me down, like no emotion, nothing. And I just continued to say uh, hi to him. He kept not responding. Um, I'm feeling confused about all of this. And Monday uh, of this week comes and, uh, and we're, we're, we're at a tournament and I come out to the car and he's got some pretty young kids and I found a, um, a full of both things open diaper um, sitting on top of my car. And, uh, and I immediately went, it was him. And, uh, and I asked Gideon, you know, what the car looked like that was parked next to ours on that side because it was on the one side of the vehicle and he described it and I was like, okay, it was. By the time we got home, his, um, the, the mom of his kids had texted me and said, I'm so sorry. I'm so, so sorry. Um, that was him. Uh, it wasn't me. We're cool. Uh, so sorry. And, and uh, so I've realized like, oh, okay. I mean, that, that was on purpose, like hardcore. I wasn't outraged and filled with hate in that moment. I wasn't like, I wasn't, I, I just wasn't. Amazingly, actually, amazingly, because where I go to in default is anger. Um, amazingly, I brushed it off. But it did not occur to me for a full 36 hours after Monday night to pray for him. It didn't even occur to me. I'm in the text. I'm preparing to preach the text. It didn't occur to me for 36 hours to pray for this guy. I'm a human in process, right? 
So Wednesday afternoon of this week, I start to uh, pray for his well-being, genuinely. Not like get him, but like turn him to you. Within seconds of beginning to pray for him, the idea popped into my head that I'm gonna reach out to his kid's mom who texted me. I don't know the relational status there, so that's how I'm referring to her. So uh, I, I, I reached out to her and I said, hey, could I have his number? I'd like to just reach out to him, send him a message and just say, hey, we're cool. Like, I, I get it, we're cool. Um, and so, so I did that. Um, the text was kind. Like, I'm just, I'm, I'm still even processing in this moment because I've like, I've got emotion around it. Um, I, I, I said, hey, hopefully I'll get a chance to, like, I forgive you. Hopefully I'll get a chance to see you on Saturday morning at Jenny's game. He texted me back two sentences and said, I'll never forget what you said to me. Keep your distance. Um, and so I asked for clarity what, like, what I said because I didn't remember um, and he hasn't responded. I reached out and asked um, the, the mother of his kids and she clued me in and I'm like, okay, I, now I remember that. Um, but here's the point. Like, then, I, then we saw him on Friday night at Winco and expected to see him on Saturday morning. I saw him driving last week. Like this is all in my own world and I've, I've got an individual who I'm like being active. Here's my point. I'm being taught by the Holy Spirit to actively pray for this dude and to not hate him and to not post his phone number on Craigslist saying like free chickens or something like that, you know? <laughs> it's crossed my mind. Revenge fantasies while you're brushing your teeth, right? Like these things, these things happen. Pray for him, would you? Yes. Please, not that he would get what he deserves, but that he would get what he doesn't deserve. The grace and merciful experience of the goodness of the God who saves that's what I want because all things can be reconciled when that falls into place. All things. Jesus has one challenge for us this week. And here it is. Identify our enemies. Identify your opponents. Identify those who you greatly struggle with. Maybe you don't have a problem with them, but you know by the way they treat you or talk about you in the workplace or in school that they have a problem with you. And you're perplexed and it freaks you out and all you want is reconciliation and they won't give it to you. And now you're in turmoil within. Pray for them. Who are they? Would you name them? Not out loud, but like where you are, would you name them? Who are they? Right now. Pray for them. What are their faces? Their names? What have they done? How are you frustrated? Pray for their well-being right now. Just take a moment. Now ask the Spirit to remind you to pray for them again and again and again and again and again and again and again. Would you do that right now? Just ask the Holy Spirit to remind you. This is Jesus' way of life. Loving enemies by praying for them. 
This is where true strength comes from. Here's my fourth point. Ask, is Jesus' way becoming our way? Notice what uh, Jesus says in verse 45, the first portion of verse 45, what he says about the outcome of loving enemies by praying for them. He says, so that, there's a purpose clause there, so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. My dad's name is David. He's about five foot nine. So am I. He and I have a similar build. Our voices sound very, very similar on the telephone. Often I act like him both good and bad. I've even caught myself recently when I sit down, I hold my hands in a position that he holds his hands in when he sits down. I see my dad in me. I tell my kids I love them multiple times a day. Why? Because for 42 years, my dad has done that for me. I resemble Dave. I carry Dave's likeness. If we are sons, I've been raised by him, formed by him, discipled by him. I've spent the first years of my formative life obeying Dave. If we are sons and daughters of God, spending time in his presence through prayer, through his word, through obedience, guess what? We will also carry his likeness. D.A. Carson says, to bless and to pray for those who persecute us is to align oneself with the character of God. Sons and daughters imitate their parents. I know that not all of our examples of, of parents are, are, are ideal, but in an ideal sense, when sons and daughters imitate parents, they become mature. God himself is mature, full-grown, whole, entirely perfect. Here's my last point this, this morning. Jesus' way is the way of maturity. Here's that perplexing verse in verse 48. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. The word perfect causes Americans, causes Westerners problems in this passage, right out of the gates. Let's be honest about that. The word under it is the Greek word teleos or teleos. It means perfectly mature or grown. That's a little different than how we think of and define the word perfect in English. If you're like me, when you hear the word perfect, you think faultless, flawless, no faults, precise, exact. If, that's, if you're like me, that's how I see perfect. But teleos has a range of meaning in our New Testament. It's far more full and nuanced than our English word perfect Teleos means perfect. It can mean perfect in an absolute sense, but it can also mean mature, being full grown to the full grown to the height of what it is supposed to be full grown to. Full maturity, full manhood, full womanhood, complete, fully developed. It can describe simultaneously the perfection of God and mature adults. Here's how it's used in a few other places. They'll be up on the screen. Yet among the teleos, the mature, we impart wisdom, though it's not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. Again, Paul in Philippians says this, those, let those of us who are teleos think this way, mature, and if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that to you also. You're a work in progress. He's growing you. He's maturing you. He would write to the, the Colossians, a man named Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand, what? Mature and fully assured in all the will of God. 
Jesus is not asking you to be flawless. Again, in in Luke's gospel, in Luke chapter six, he teaches here in Luke, um, it's the same, it's a similar body of teaching. And Luke says, you therefore must be merciful as your father is merciful. Here, Matthew records it as perfect as your father is perfect. Both accounts are giving us a picture of the father's maturity. Jesus is teaching us to pursue maturity. He's teaching us to pursue godliness. That's what, that's what growing in godliness means, is that we're growing up into maturity. How do we do that? We fix our gaze on his example. We fix our ears to his voice, and then we follow him. And that has an effect on your life day by day. You grow up. I grow up. We become more and more mature. Actively, we live like sons and daughters of our Father who is in heaven. Enemy love is far from easy, but it is the way of Jesus. And in some ways, I began saying, like, it's the, it's the essence of lived out Christianity in some ways. It's the litmus test of our discipleship. The cross is the ultimate act of enemy love. Jesus Christ is the perfect full, mature human being. While hanging there at the cross, Jesus prayed for all who were setting themselves up as his enemies, all those who were responsible for his death. And what did he pray? Forgive them. Have mercy on them. They're acting in unbelief. They're acting in ignorance. This is the way of our teacher. This is the way of our Lord. This is the way of our master. Jesus, would you help? Would you help us to, as a people, um, to think carefully about this? Would you help us to go and to to listen to teaching on enemy love um, and to not look for the loophole, Father? Protect us from the loophole. Uh, We're squirrely. And we're in love with many things and we've been formed by many people and thoughts and philosophies. And I pray by your spirit that the one thought and philosophy that would endure and would, would rise to the top for us, shaping us, would be your teaching, Jesus. That we would be a people who are first and foremost followers of the risen Christ. And that that would give shape and contour and texture to all of our conduct whether it's to those who love us or to those who hate us. Would you do it in Jesus' name? Amen. Amen. So we, uh, we've been um, spending a little bit of time uh, just doing some question and response, some Q&R. You saw some, um, you saw some questions up on the screen. If you've got some questions, do we have any back there this morning? We've got one. Feel free to send them. If you send them now, um, send them now and, uh, and they can take somewhere between a minute, two minutes to actually get there and for them to compile them. So if you've got a question you wanna interact with, feel free. I'm gonna go ahead and just set a clock for around five minutes and we'll interact with this text. Go ahead and throw it on the screen. Forgiveness and reconciliation are often wrongfully tangled. Are loving your enemies and reconciliation also wrongfully associated? Can you love as Christ loved and not be reconciled? Yes. Yes, I believe that you can. And I do, uh, I, I've had some conversations recently around this. I, I think that it's a broader topic than I can give, than I can give a ton of clarity to this morning. But forgiveness, um, forgiveness can be one-sided, 
I do not believe that reconciliation can be. Reconciliation has to include both parties coming together and reconciling with one another, coming back together, conciling, reconnecting. But forgiveness is a command given to us by the Lord Jesus that is very much one-sided. It can be two-sided. And when it is two-sided, that's what brings reconciliation. But when it is only one-sided, it is still a command. And the command is to free, is to, is, is to image your father, image the son of God in the way, in our conduct. But it's also to free us from the turmoil of bitterness, within us. Forgiveness functions like the key that unshackles us from resentment and from bitterness and from uh, hatred in our own hearts. Um, a pastor that I, 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 I love and respect said this a long time ago. It's, I've never forgotten it. May you never forget it. For, may you never forget it. Um, to hold bitterness is like drinking poison in order to kill your enemies. That's what unforgiveness is. It's like we take the poison saying, I'm gonna get you. And we're meanwhile killing ourselves, maiming ourselves internally. That's how I would answer that question. Do we have another one? Yeah, go ahead. What is the most common excuse loophole our culture uses and believes to get around enemy love? Oh man. So you've honed in there on this. You've used these two words, our culture. So I'm gonna to speak to our culture. I'm gonna to speak to Idaho right now. I'm gonna to speak to uh, a, a, a gun culture, which I own weapons. I'm not making a statement on any of that. I like, that's something that I have appreciation for. But what I consistently hear is that I won't, I, I, I mentioned this at the beginning of the message this morning too. Um, I grew up in a culture that said, if they come, I, if they come for whatever, I won't hesitate to take them out. And so I think one of the common loopholes that we need to really wrestle with as a people is if somebody comes in to do harm to those around us or us, have we premeditated, have we thought in advance helpfully and according to Jesus's teaching, how we will respond in those moments. Have we just, have we settled on the fact that I'll take out the concealed weapon and I'll put them down in an instant? Or have we settled on the fact that I am going to use all means necessary to try to subdue and stop this action and to Bear violence, to not move straight to violence, for violence to actually be a, a last, 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 last result option on the table. Uh, I, I, uh, some of these Bridgetown interviews, I think, help. Gary Brashear's um, interview especially, I think, helps us to think carefully about the idea of what it looks like for Jesus's people to commit to a life of nonviolence and then to think through scenarios, literally, like mugging or like home invasion. Trevor even talked about a few of them last week, and he said they don't always go well, but there were two instances that were brought up in that same interview where uh, a person was came into a home and was going to attack a woman, and she said, but for First, can I make you some coffee? And they went into her basement.
basement and she made the guy a cup of coffee and then he just left. It doesn't always go that, that well. But there, that might have been a knee-jerk reaction, and that might be our knee-jerk reaction in some of those scenarios. But what does it look like for us to think carefully about situations where somebody comes at me? What do I do? Somebody is trying to take the life of another person around me. Do I functionally enter in? Am I counting the cost? I will enter into that fray physically. I will try to subdue that individual. I'll try to tangle them up, to tie them up, to kick them off, to get them away without actually um, killing them or murdering them or maiming them if it is possible. I think those are really, really, really important questions for us to ask. And I think it does tap on something in us. Uh, I'll just stop there. I have more to say about it, but the Bridgetown interviews are, are super helpful. Do we have any more? Actually, we're at five minutes, so I'm gonna stop. There is one more. Let's do it. <laughs> How would I encourage someone who has experienced incredible personal hurt by others to pray and forgive their enemies? Such a good question. I think you start by praying for them. Don't run right into the action of advice, but start to pray for them. Start to pray with them, I think would be a tangible help, especially where, you're, where they're struggling publicly with you in relationship. Can I pray for you? And that you would just begin to ask the Spirit of God to intervene. Uh, I do think that we need to create strong boundaries around our friends who have experienced incredible personal hurt by others so that they are not unwisely just entering back into those environments to be wounded and wounded and wounded again. We do need boundaries and we do need a community of friends. We do need a, a support community of people around us who will help to protect us you don't have to make yourself available to an abuser or to somebody who has wounded you relationally while yet still praying for that individual. I'll just stop there. Father, would you help us to, uh, whoever this person is, would you intervene? Um, Jesus, I recognize that you have suffered incredible personal hurt at the hands of your enemies. And your posture is one of forgiveness. And yeah, we kind of tend to write that off as your God, of course. But throughout church history, we have story upon story upon story upon story. In fact, that's, I think, how the church multiplied was through enemy love, patient endurance at the hands of enemies. Would you help this individual to open uh, their heart to grace and mercy to a person who does not deserve it, who actually deserves consequence? And through this radical act on behalf of this individual, not just act, but acts, because that's how it goes for us when we've been wounded. It's so much work day and day to, to forgive and to love. Would you open up their abuser to your grace? And would you open up this person's heart to your grace and to your mercy? radically transform them in Jesus' name. Amen.